Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Ooh, Halloween special on a haunting afternoon for Ten Hag. Today, we'll be talking Manchester Derby. Also, Chelsea handing big treats to their visitors and too much toffees for West Ham. Also today, Wolves Newcastle, the net for Huang and the netto twang. Nkataya is on fire and football in the Faroes. It's the Totally Football Show. Sunday, 29th of October. Hello, listener. It's probably Monday with you, eh? But here's what we got for you today. Some Tim Spears. Hi, James. Hello, Tim. A little bit of Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Jimbo. Hello there, Seb. Thank you for dropping in. I'm very excited to be here. Well, that's great news. Not here, but equally excited are Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. And Adrian Clark. Hello, everybody. Nice. Daniel's story this week was a one-man population search, weren't you, Daniel? <laughs> yeah, I added about 0.02% of the population of the Faroes. Yeah. Right. Well, you went to Klaxvig. Is that Klaxvig? Klaxvig. Koi, as they pronounce it. It's just, right. they say, yeah, Koi. Koi, okay. Which has a population of 5,094 people, but still managed to have the first ever victory in a European competition by a Faroe Islands team and you were there to watch it on Thursday yeah I'm, I, I've been playing this piece ever since the draw was made because they're the first Faroe's team to even reach the group stage and as KOI did I circled this fixture at home to Olympia Ljubljana as okay this is one that they, they're probably going to perform the best in aka not lose and then they went and drew at home to Lille which was a phenomenal result and slightly put the pressure on their performance on Thursday night, both for me and them. But they were, yeah, they were fantastic. They won 3-0. Uh, they're only two points off qualification place at the moment in the Conference League. And it, I mean, it is a, it's a remarkable story. They are a semi-professional team. The first goal was scored by an electrician, the third by a fish farm worker. I think there's a tendency with these these sort of minnow clubs to think, well, someone's probably shoved a load of money in or they're probably run by this huge corporation. That's not true. They are just a tiny little town in the Faroes and they can't quite believe it just as much as I couldn't quite believe it. Magnificent. You also went to West Ham this weekend. Which journey took longer? Well, I, I, got, I sat down for longer in the Faroes' journey. I was stood up all the way home from London, as is traditional. And yeah, I saw a, a far worse home performance from West Ham than I did from Koi um, because, yeah, I mean... All right. They mm. were so, we'll, we'll touch on it later, yeah. they were more so on, insipid. More on that and uh, Daniel away with the Faroes later on in the show. Quick check on the Premier League results this weekend. Everton won on Sunday 1-0 at West Ham. 
Liverpool beat Forest 3-0. Villa were 3-1 winners against Luton. Brighton drew 1-1 with Fulham. The Seagulls have still never beaten the Cottagers in the Premier League. And in the Manchester derby, Man City beat Man United 3-0. That leaves City still one point ahead of Liverpool. Still level with Arsenal, who battered Sheffield United 5-0 on Saturday. And still two points behind Spurs, who on Friday beat Crystal Palace 2-1. Also this weekend, Brentford got their usual win at Chelsea. They've now won, in fact, more league games at Stamford Bridge in the last seven months than Chelsea have. At Wolves and Newcastle drew 2-2. Bournemouth-Burnley turned out to be not boring in the slightest. The Cherries getting their first win, in fact, of the season against uh, their bottom three rivals, 2-1. The Cherries thus moving out of the bottom three. Luton dropping back into it again. Burnley stay 19th and Sheffield United are in last place Five points from safety. All right, to Old Trafford for some red-hot derby action. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Rugby clouted it, another reacted, Haaland's onto it, and Foden steers it home. Manchester City gloriously greedy. Yep, Phil Foden wrapping it up there for Man City on Sunday afternoon in their 3-0 derby victory over the neighbours. The first two goals coming from Erling Haaland, who Duncan Alexander points out has now scored as many Premier League goals as Swindon Town. Although, to be fair, Swindon Town did it three games quicker than Erling Haaland did. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, thoughts on the derby? Well, first of all, Seb, you're, you're joining us exclusively to talk about this game. So drop it on us. Well, I, I mean, this is a compliment, but it was quite sterile. It was not red hot. Sorry to, to, to ruin your intro, but it felt very, very controlled from City. I think previously with this game, we've seen Manchester United, depending on what state they're in, regardless of it, being able to kind of play above themselves and unsettle Manchester City's rhythm and interfere with their mechanics. And this was as slick a City performance as I can remember seeing it at Old Trafford. It was so dominant. It looked so easy at times. And yeah, a couple of, couple of really nice saves from Edison, especially in the first half right at the end. But everything worked exactly as it should do for City. And I think if I'm a Man United fan, I think the very least I expect is some interruption, some, some chaos, a little bit of turmoil um, to kind of inflict upon Guardiola's master plan for the game. And, and you didn't get any of that. And in a derby, that's, that's so disappointing. City with an XG of almost four. Really? Even more than Newcastle had when they put eight goals past Sheffield United. Adrian, though, were City helped a little bit, though, with the awarding of that penalty, which kind of got things rolling? Of course they were. They were, they were given a leg up. I, I don't think I would dispute that it was a foul at all. I think it was a foul, but that kind of incident happens, I don't know how often, 30, 40 times every weekend. And VAR doesn't search it out with the same enthusiasm as it seemed to here. So it happened. It was the breakthrough goal. But look, Manchester City were vastly superior as the stats would outline. This was men against boys. I thought the performance was a, an awful reflection on Eric Ten Hag. Seb just touched on it there. Basically, what Seb was saying was that they, they didn't play with any fire in their bellies. They didn't lay a glove on Manchester City. I think the midfield were in particular were chasing shadows throughout the game. You could look at the starting lineup and say, well, why didn't Varane play ahead of probably Evans? What, why did Reggion not play 
instead of Lindelof out of position at right back. And then you can ask the question, why did he take Amrabat off and, and put on Mount and, and, and effectively weaken the central midfield defensively for that second half? So I think, and then you, you get to the behaviour of the players, Bruno Fernandes, Anthony, really petulant in the second half, almost looking to get themselves sent off. That's what it felt like watching it. So I think that that dressing room is rotten. I think it's been bad for a long, long, long time. And unfortunately, I think Eric Ten Hag has lost that dressing room. And I think he's a little bit lost for ideas to fix it. So this was, this was a really bad day for him. And I think he's under quite a lot of pressure now. Seventh of eight in 14 games. Yeah. Among the many people posing questions indeed about the starting lineup. Colin Miller, who said a thesis could be written on how Man United are a broken, dysfunctional mess, but a manager spending a large chunk of a limited transfer budget to sign a midfielder, Mount, who he doesn't start, and a striker, Hoyland, who he takes off when chasing a goal with no alternative, is extraordinarily damning, Colin continues. Then you have Anthony, United's second most expensive player, at the manager's behest and without any pushback from senior club figures, also not trusted to play. His sole contribution limited to avoiding a deserved red card. Incredibly damning for everyone involved. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When they appointed Ten Hag, it was we were told or we were led to believe it was because he was this kind of breath of fresh air tactically, but also that he was going to kind of bring this meritocracy to the club, that the Ronaldo situation being the obvious example, that Manchester United had too many bad eggs in the squad. And I don't mean bad eggs as in, you know, disruptive personally, but that there was not enough built for the future. There's not enough future proofing for this squad. So his idea that he was coming, he would come in, there would be this meritocracy, no one would have their place. And it would be all pure performance based. And the reality is, is that he has either walked away from that or been forced away from that by the performance of certain players and by his own underperformance. We are 18 months into his job now. And the one thing we expected in month one from Ted Hag is that it, we could look at Manchester United and think this is a Ten Hag team. This is a Manchester United team that he wants to bring. It might not always work. They might not always win, but there would be a system. The obvious example is with De Zerbe. Brighton are on a poor run at the moment they haven't won in five or six but you can still tell what they're trying to do and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't Manchester United have this incredibly expensive squad and yet it's basically hard to work out what the plan is most of the time that's very hard to do against Manchester City anyway when they're playing well but in those circumstances you at least expect this kind of derby mentality to take over and the only time they started putting a foot in really was when the game was lost and it was to try and foul players not to try and win the ball it was complete indiscipline and when you combine a lack of obvious tactical philosophy, results moving in the wrong direction and very obvious indiscipline within the squad, yeah, I agree with Adrian. It looks like he's lost that. And we know there are certain players in that squad who are banking that they will last longer than he will. Jaden Sancho being a very obvious example. And I wonder if there's another two or three that are thinking, I'm quite happy that Jaden's taking this heat because I'm silently behind him. It never really feels like adversity informs anything at Manchester United. So when you see, a, yeah, every fan can relate to this. So you watch your team play, especially when they're under, you know, in the first sort of year, 18 months of a managerial cycle. And you think, well, I can tolerate seeing that go wrong and that go wrong and that go wrong because it's going to inform the thinking going forward. Whereas Manchester United, you never get the sense that when an experiment goes wrong or a player doesn't perform quite so well against a particular opponent or a certain situation, nothing changes as a result of that. And I, I think 
that would be my, my biggest frustration with Eric Ten Hag is that there's no um, evolution is probably the word that I'm looking for. Like you, you have your spending and you have your pieces being put around. And I think the guys are probably right about the dressing room culture and um, the pliability of some of these players. But the way forward isn't very clear. It's not it's not tactics by process of elimination. You're not really discovering anything with these performances. And I think you hate losing to your local rivals, but you didn't you don't think well, in a week we've learned X, Y, and Z, and therefore we're going to be a little bit better as a result of that. And it's, it's difficult to take and difficult to watch, actually. Daniel mentioned about attacking identity, but there wasn't even a defensive plan that I could see when you've got... Especially, let's talk about that second City well, goal then. Yeah, absolutely. When Holland is, is drifting away from four players who are running in the opposite direction to go towards the ball, <laughs> and he's just left, you know, the most prolific striker in the world... Is left with a free header. He had so much space. It was absolutely pathetic, to be honest. You know, I look at I look at what what Wolves did against City a few weeks ago. They completely stopped Holland with Craig Dawson. You know, it's not okay. You need to you need to completely sacrifice some attacking ambitions to do that. And it's a little bit shameless, which of course Wolves, Wolves can do. Maybe United can't at Old Trafford, but there was no plan at either end of the pitch. And it sort of reminded me of like an FA Cup tie between like a, a minnow. And, and, and a big club in that United were, were purely looking at like moments of individual brilliance, mostly from like direct attacks and like they probably needed a bit of momentum and the crowd to get involved and, and win them the game. You know, you look at City, such a well-oiled machine and United are just like a bit of like a cut and shut really with Evans and Maguire at uh, centre-back and Lindelof at full-back. They, and they remind me of where sort of Spurs were a year ago that everyone's just quite miserable. And they're relying on sort of late moments of brilliance, just like Spurs were late comebacks or something special from Harry Kane or an individual player to get through games. But in terms of performances, even when United have been winning the last few weeks, performances have not been good. In terms of dominating games, in terms of just fun and just enjoying it, it's not there at all. And um, you, you can only see changes having to happen on the horizon because they're only going in one direction. Mm. Newcastle United coming up in the League Cup uh, midweek. Be interesting to see what happens. With that, as for City, meanwhile, they can make you look bad. But what did you most enjoy about their performance? I thought the left-hand side were brilliant. I really did. I thought that um, Bernardo and and Jack Grealish were were just a wonderful double act. Down that side, you saw it for the two big chances for for Erling Haaland, with with Bernardo going around Grealish, getting to the byline and digging out those crosses to to the far stick. Bernardo was was superb, but but Grealish put in a, a top performance, maybe his best of the season, and <laughs> Jeremy Doku probably deserves some credit for that because he's been sensational, hasn't he? The the best dribbling winger in the Premier League across the last few weeks, and and I think he laid down a marker that Jack responded to uh, in this game. So so yeah, well done to him, and obviously the the Stones Rodri axis being back in full swing again now is alarming for the rest of the division because those two are just um, so slick nothing gets through them and and the ball just maneuvers serenely around the pitch when those two are at the base of that engine room so yeah this was a an outstanding Manchester City performance Um, I thought they'd make Manchester United look bad and they did again we've completely taken him for granted as we always do with Rodri because Again, he's the one that controls the tempo somehow with and without the ball. I think he's the, the best midfielder at the world in dictating the tempo of his team's play when they have the ball. 
and that's managing the situation in the game as well. That's not necessarily playing at the same speed all the time. It's dictating which speed to play at. But without the ball, he is just a, he's just phenomenal because he's not quick. He's not hugely physical. His reading of the game is is magnificent. He is kind of Guardiola's ultimate disciple. And, you know, my God, they've missed him when he's not been there this season. But he doesn't get injured often and he doesn't miss many games. And if he doesn't miss any between now and the end of the season, they'll win the league with ease. Was it was it Rodri who was hauled back by by Hoyland for the for the penalty? Which you know, just to mention that was did you know the first penalty that Manchester City have ever been awarded at Old Trafford in the Premier League era. The last time they were they were given a spot kick there was April nineteen ninety two. Uh, Keith Curl dispatched it in a one one draw. Keith Curl. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, they, we should say that they were rotten for about half of those years yeah. at Old Trafford. And then they were so good that they didn't need penalties for the other half. So, mm. yeah. Just a quick word on Erling Haaland. Oh, yeah. um, he's, he scored the same amount of goals as Manchester United this season. Um, oh, that's nice. What a telling statistic, Adrian. Thank you so much. Uh, Seb, you're going to depart now on account of the fact that you haven't watched anything else this weekend, apart from Spurs, who are coming up much, much later on. So many thanks for stopping by on your way to Hamburg, I think. I'm going to Frankfurt and then Dortmund and then Hamburg. All right. Like a kind of sort of low-rent Jason Bourne kind of character. Just, wow. you know, yeah. jet-setting lifestyle. And you can follow... Uh, Seb's progress and indeed all the magnificent articles that it furnishes uh, on The Athletic. Thank you anyway for being with us. Catch you soon, Seb. Thanks for having me, Jimbo. Four other games played on Sunday, three of which were at two o'clock and not on TV. So I'm not sure how much you saw of Liverpool or Villa's wins or the Brighton-Fulham draw. I got quite a bit of Brighton. They're in a, they're in a bit of a funk at the moment. And under Graham Potter, they had this... You know, we all know they were the XG champions. They missed. A, they created a huge number of chances and missed them. Under Deserby at the moment, it's slightly shifted further away from goal in that they've they've had more than seventy percent possession in three games this season, two in the league and one in the Europa League, and they've taken one point from those three games, which is today. And they're just struggling to break teams down who who sit with that low block. They had 18 shots today and most of them were from range where I think they traded a total XG of about 1.5, 18 shots, which, you know, to, to cut through those numbers, they're basically taking the shots from too far away and from positions where they're unlikely to score. And that's become a bit of a theme this season, I think. I don't know if, I don't know what the answer is because they love playing on the counter, but we've said it before, Adrian said it before, every opposition manager in the Premier League now knows I'm going to sit behind the ball. If I can counter, I will. And if I if, if I can't, then I will just kind of shut up shop and try and concede one or no goals. And it's, it is working against Brighton. Yeah, in regards to the game, Joao Paulinha kind of was the story of the match. Should have been sent off. Oh, really? What One of the most blatant, deliberate elbows that I've seen for a long, long time on, on Pascal Gross. It, it was nasty. I'm not quite sure how he got away with it. Um, but, but he's a brilliant player. He is the heartbeat of Fulham without without Joao Paulinho, Fulham go down mm. I they, think there's no doubt about that he, they, he they may only tackles. have about another two months with him of course well this is true this is true but if Bayern Munich come back in for him he, he, he should go because I do think he belongs at that level uh, he made 10 tackles in the game which is just extraordinary more than any at, player in a Premier League game this season really is, yeah. yeah I didn't know that and, and, and on top of that he, he picked up 11 ball recoveries so that's winning possession without having to make a tackle so he was outstanding he scored a great goal from a turnover, Brighton have given a few of those away, trying trying to play out from the back this season. So, um, 
yeah, a bit for Brighton to work on, and and Fulham really, it's all about Palinia. Okay. Brighton, of course, claimed their first ever European win on Thursday night against four-time European champions Ajax. It was a 2-0 win in the Europa League. Slight asterisk is that this Ajax is quite different to those Ajaxes. They were defeated, in fact, having been 2-1 up against Eredivisie leaders PSV this weekend. They then contrived to lose 5-2 and are now bottom of the division. After five straight defeats, good Lord. Villa, their impressive form continued. Another three goals today, Tim. Yeah, and I think there's an obvious contrast to make between them and Brighton in terms of how they're handling the extra games and the the extra physical nature that comes with European football. Uh, Deserby spoken about Brighton not being able to handle that very well so far. And of course it is, you know, it's a massive change. You know, if, if they do well in the competition, you can easily look at sort of upward of 12 to 14 games if you go far on top of what you're already doing. So, but obviously Unai, Unai Emery is the master of combining the two. He's done it so many times in his career. I think I'd probably be right in saying that Villa have got more players with European experience than Brighton, but Villa have just got such an established way of, of playing at the moment. And it's 12 wins in a row at home making it a real fortress there mm. and sort of having the time of their lives, I think. The Villa yeah. fans are absolutely loving it. Thursday night, they were away at AZ Alkmaar, who, of course, were semi-finalists in the Conference League last season. They beat them 4-1. But that's it. They're, they're not just squeaking past teams mm. 1-0 here and just, and just getting through it on momentum. You know, there's two 4-1 wins in a row with that West Ham game last week. Right, yeah. And now comfortably dispatching of Luton today. It seemed very one-sided. Right. Liverpool, meanwhile, 3-0 winners today over Nottingham Forest. Uh, Luis Diaz not in the squad after the terrible news from Colombia of the kidnapping of his parents. Uh, scoring open by Diogo Jota, who promptly held up uh, Luis Diaz's shirt and a gesture of support. But, uh, yeah, thoughts with him and his family there. Darwin Nunez doubled the lead before half-time. Before, Daniel, a moment to forget from the Forest keeper. <laughs> yeah, Matt, Matt Turner's been okay this season. Forest signed Benfica's number one over the summer, who happens also to be Greek, which um, doesn't do you any disservice at Forest. And I suspect that next week at home to Villa, he might get his debut because, yeah, Matt Turner had a, a hugely rash moment where he sort of runs out and then sees that ball's about to bounce and then delays slightly, panicking, which only makes it worse and the ball bounces over his head. And I'm glad he didn't handball it, which would have been the very natural thing to do. But yeah, an horrendous mistake. The game was already done by then. Mm. Liverpool were, Most, were very dominant. Mo Salah puts away the, the third. Oh, Adrian. Yeah, yeah look, it's, it's just another day where the Liverpool forwards and attacking midfielders were very, very impressive. I, th- I think they're... Without making that much noise, the likes of Soboslai and Salah and Jota and Nunez are, are all chipping away at, at the goal counts on a consistent basis. You know, they, they they keep on scoring goals. And Nunez had five shots inside the box. You know, he offers great penetration. Defenders are really frightened of him. They they tend to back off. And and Soboslai, just such a classy player. What a clean striker of the ball he is he he created four chances the two assists that he made were brilliant lovely little run beyond Salah to get to the byline and and, and sort of play it across the face of goal and then the other one it was his long ball that forced that that error from from Matt Turner so yeah Liverpool are, are looking good and the home form as it always is is just so strong it's a year now since they were last defeated at Anfield in the Premier League so yeah very very impressive extraordinary Extraordinary. Three points off the top of the table. Meanwhile, the early game on Sunday saw Everton taking a big win 
at the London Stadium against West Ham. And as mentioned, Daniel, you were there. Mighty three points, this, for the Toffees, which could prove very handy, eh, Daniel? Yeah, and, and completely deserved. The, the first half was wretched, although you understandably got the sense that, that Sean Dyche was far happier with that situation than David Moyes. And you're talking to West Ham fans at half-time, sort of, we need to change it, it needs to improve. And, and they got worse and Everton got better. The basic difference in the game was... Dominic Calvert-Lewin versus Mikel Antonio because Antonio is it's a it's a travesty that he is still West Ham's first choice centre forward they've got to do something else whether it's playing Jared Bowen in the middle uh, and bringing in a you know bringing in Kudus to go with Suchek and, and James Ward-Prowse and Alvarez I don't know but that something's got to change because he just doesn't hold the ball up anymore he got the ball stuck under his feet for a chance in the first half and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I think, had one shot and scored it. Turned in the box really nicely. Great finish. One, three or four, you know, flick on headers for a teammate. Everton were really good after they went ahead. I worried that they might try to sit back, which Newcastle did a bit against West Ham when I was last there and ended up conceding the lead twice. They didn't do that. Everton kept on pushing on. Pitford made a couple of brilliant saves and it's obviously been a, a tragic week for Everton and a difficult week with the kind of rumours over 12 point deductions etc but the away end at full time and I showed you everything they need to know they are bang up for it and if they keep Dominic Calvert-Lewin fit he will score 10 goals this season Dwight McNeil was their top scorer last season he's the difference between them being lower mid-table and being threatened by relegation so they've won four of their last six in all competitions what's been the difference for Everton is it just the return of Dominic Calvert-Lewin yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they, they bought three attacking players on permanent deals in the summer. Beto, Chimiti uh, and Dan Juma, and all of them were on the bench against West Ham. It's Calvert-Lewin. Jack Harrison's come into the team and looks good. McNeil is good. That midfield looks stronger. They've, they've dropped to Driss Gay, but it look, still looks really strong. And they're defending properly. Jared Branthwaite's come in and is probably one of the kind of unheralded stars of this Premier League season to date because he's been fantastic, really solid next to Tarkovsky. Michael Keane's not in the team anymore, which... His detractors would say is a good thing. Yeah, they look really strong. It looks more like a, a Daishian team with, with Calvert-Lewin up front to plan to play that Burnley-Chris Wood role with the wingers either side of him. And he looks like he's got a team he really fancies at the moment. Mm. West Ham, by contrast, three straight defeats now, beaten by Villa last weekend, defeated at Olympiacos. That's their first defeat in 18 European games, West Ham. That was on Thursday. And then this here... Wednesday night, they will be hosting Arsenal in the Carabao Cup. That and the Man United-Newcastle game, the two televised fixtures from the last 16 of the League Cup, although you can also uh, go along to see Everton, Burnley, Ipswich, Fulham and a bunch of other games. Hmm. Arsenal, we'll come to them very very shortly. Big win for them this weekend as we discuss uh, the other things that happen on Saturday and Friday. Football is bigger and more complicated than ever before. Just ask VAR. Check complete. It's fine. Perfect. So the Daily Football Briefing is here to help, whether it's the World Cup. It's a kind of face-saving, everyone's happy, no one's a loser. Lionel Messi. As they say, he completed football. Or Manchester United. I mean, the performances all season have been questionable. That are making you quizzical. The Daily Football Briefing has all the answers you need for every football story that matters. And it does exactly what the name suggests. It's daily, it's brief, and it's all about football. The Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic, available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. This is The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Oh, now he's out of his goal. And Neil Mopay, who hasn't scored in ages, is surely going to end his barren run now. He's passed it on instead to a Burmo, and he's wrapped the game up. And Brentford have won here again. Yep, £1 billion later, that's the entertaining sight of Chelsea keeper Robert Sanchez tearing back off to two Brentford players who were bearing down on his unattended goal on Saturday. Neil Mopé was one, gone 13 months without a goal. Still going 13 months without a goal. Why, how did he pass? Why did he pass there, James? He's completely run out of gas, isn't he? (laughs) It looked like me at five aside, so I'm I'm a big fan of it. That was an absolute gimme. To, to get that, that run off your back, I mean, mm. yeah, you might regret that. <laughs> what, uh, what about that moment? There was a snapshot of uh, a pretty extraordinary Brentford performance, especially in that second half away at, at Chelsea. Yeah, they, they, they're a team of character. They know they're very, very confident without the ball. And I think that's, that, that's a good trait to have when you, you face Chelsea because they will try and hog possession. So you've got to back yourself to to stay solid and they did and and they're just set up aren't they to to hurt teams on the counter attack i think Embromo is having a, a fantastic season really has stepped up to the plate in the absence of Ivan Tony and uh, yeah they they deserved this win i got i got to say when i saw chelsea's lineup the starting 11 before the game i thought ooh i don't know about that i just wasn't sure i think there's there's a few players in there who that wouldn't doing? have got anywhere near Chelsea starting 11s in, in years gone by, like, in my opinion. Like I think. who? Uh, I think Disassi. I'm not, I'm not a fan of him at all. Um, I, I don't rate Sanchez. I think uh, Madueke is is a player of promise, but but not not yet the finished article. Nicholas Jackson. I mean, he was he was um, dissected and destroyed by Alan Shearer on Match of the Day, mm. which was which was fair. It was fair game because the analysis was spot on of of what he's not offering Chelsea at the moment. So yeah, look what 
what I found with Arsenal in the previous week when they played at Chelsea, if you let them come on to you too much, they, they can swarm you and, and create things. But if you can step up and engage and just meet them a little bit higher up the pitch and win the ball in midfield, then you can ask questions of their back four. And I just don't think their back four is very good. Chelsea's um, they, they protect it well because they have so much of the ball so I think the key to success against them is sort of in the middle of the pitch really being aggressive win the ball there and then get at them and and that's what Brentford did in the second half and they and they picked them off no I mean it's not it's not all on Nicholas Jackson because he's a he's a raw centre forward in his first season in a league and he's not what Chelsea needed but the last four Premier League games he started Chelsea have had 62 shots and haven't scored a goal so, as I say, he hasn't had all of those or even half of those, but there is a problem about their worry about mm. his finishing, that they try and service him, he misses a couple of chances, and then they start shooting from range because they, they, they're worried about overplaying it and giving him a chance that he then misses. Right. Um, and it kind of doubles down on that same problem. Chelsea supporters would point out that they're missing the man who's supposed to be their big goal threat, Christopher Nkunku, but then <laughs> Brentford are as well, because Ivan Tony. It is out of the picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Levi Colwell, in the heat of the moment, of course, straight after the match, but he said it was it was luck um, that wasn't on Chelsea's side and that if they if they played Brentford again tomorrow, that they'd beat them. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Well, that's now three visits in a row that Brentford absolutely. have won. Absolutely. And you could see it coming a mile off when, when Chelsea missed a few early chances. And they, they did have the opportunities to win this game very easily. So mm. they've, only, they've only got themselves to blame. Yeah, Cole Palmer in the first half was Pinging those balls over the top. That's it. You had uh, Madweka uh, hit the bar. Kukurea should have scored or at least passed from six yards when he was through on goal. Sterling skied one over. So, yeah, I don't think there was any luck at all, really. It's just mm. pure, pure incompetence. Well, um, does this represent any turning point for Brentford after a difficult run? They had the victory last weekend, but it was eight games without a win before that. Or do they have to wait till the next time they come back to Stamford Bridge? To... <laughs> well, <laughs> we've seen before under Thomas Frank that he, he can set up a team with a game plan. You know, they've, they've done it against Man City. They've done it against very good teams and obviously something they've been working on all week. So I'm, I'm not sure about a, a corner turn. But, yeah, it, 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 it was an excellent game plan. Um, I'd also points towards the makers of um, popular video game uh, FIFA or whatever it's called. What's it called now, James? You I think it's know. called FIFA. It's called FC24 no, 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 now. Oh, has it changed? FC24. Yeah, yeah this season it's, it's, it's FC24. S- oh, FC. FC24. FC mm. um, is it no longer an officially affiliated Right. Yeah, yeah is, exactly, yeah. Yes. Um, so I looked up the... Ha- having seen Robert Sanchez, despite more by having a 15-yard head start on him, right. managed to basically catch him. I thought I'd just look up the... The sprinting stats. So they've got Robert Sanchez's sprint speed down as 44 out of 100 and Neil Morpay 63 out of 100. No. So yeah, I'd, I'd, wanna, I'd be flipping those over, I think. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of runs, Chelsea have got an absolutely horrible one coming up of Premier League fixtures. After Blackburn in the League Cup on Wednesday, they've got Spurs away, then Man City at home, then Newcastle away, then Brighton at home, then Man United away, although possibly those last two not as difficult, but still... Oof. The potential for disaster for a side already in the bottom half again is pretty bad. And is there any question uh, about, you know, financially? I know that Chelsea played pretty fast and loose with what a lot of people think should be their financial parameters. But how important is getting into the top four for their for, for balancing uh, all their outlay? Well, it has to be at some point. You, you cannot continue to spend money and money and money and money and money. Um, without that being a problem, particularly at the, the level that Chelsea have. 
Uh, we know that they've been very, they would consider savvy at extending these this money over six to eight years. We'll, we'll, we'll find out in six years when they're still playing Mikhail Mudrich whether that was a good idea. Um, but yes, they have to be. They have to have at least have a fallow year in the transfer window at some point. And I was speaking to a Chelsea fan last last weekend and he was saying say it kind of really quietly but maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing you know that the, the season he most enjoyed recently was that Lampard season when they weren't able to register players and they had to deal with what they had and actually it forced internally it forced some thinking it forced some assessment of players it forced them to work out a, a hierarchy of um, you know, who, what's going to work now, who's going to work in two years, who will we not need in two years. They don't have to do that at the moment because all they do is just buy another crop of players every transfer window. Mm-hmm. So it might not be the worst thing. Um, but yeah, they might also be have just finished 14th in the Premier League before it, which is a bit different. Yikes, yeah. 11 points they are off the top four. Fully 12 points behind uh, their friends Arsenal, who Saturday afternoon beat Sheffield United 5-0. Three of the goals from Eddie Nketiah. Adrian, you were there. He could have yeah, had four. He, he could, yeah. He, he he turned down the opportunity to to take the penalty, which was a nice gesture because, yeah, I, th- I just think it's thinking of the team as a whole, a little bit like Arsenal did with Kai Havertz's penalty at Bournemouth. Then they thought, well, let's give it to Fabio Vieira. He won it. He hasn't scored this season. Let's let's get him off the mark. And I thought it was quite a nice gesture. His first goal was brilliant with the the touch. Um, it was quite funny. They did actually pick up on it a match of the day. I saw it at the time. Austin Trusty shoved uh, Eddie Nketiah off him in the build-up and that inadvertently gave Eddie the space to, to get away from yeah, him. Harry Brilliant. Maguire did the same thing to Erling Haaland today, although not quite as, as visibly. But why would you do that as a defender? I don't know. It's just I think it's just a, a little bit of a tussle. It's just sort of get off sort of thing. I think it's just, just trying to win that physical duel and, and try and bully the player. But... But yeah, backfired for trust. It was a great touch from Eddie. And then obviously goal number three was was a beauty. His first mm. ever for Arsenal in the Premier League from outside the box. I mean, he is famously the six-yard box merchant, isn't he, Eddie, Eddie Nketiah? So, so his average distance uh, for, for, for goals has, has shot through the roof with, with that particular one. But yeah, the, I was pleased with the performance. It was very controlled. I think what will please Arteta the most is that they gave Sheffield United zilch. Just nothing. Their XG was 0.03. And I'll tell you their shots. They had one shot early on that was blocked from about a yard, as in the defender was a yard away from the player. So you didn't even remember it. And the only other shot was was Gustavo Hamer from the halfway line, which almost went out for a throw-in. That was it. Mm, um, so I are. think from, from Arsenal's point of view... They kept the blades at arm's length very, very nicely. So yeah, it was it was just what the doctor ordered. Very I know nice. there's been quite a lot of sympathy for rightly so for Paul Hackingbottom by the way that Sheffield United kind of reacted late or didn't react at all in this summer transfer window and sold, you know, arguably started with a weaker squad, but that defence is still underperforming. We've played ten games now, which is a decent sample size. They're on course to allow three hundred shots on target this season. Bournemouth were the worst defenders last season with 198. So, I mean, this is like, it's off the chart in terms of how poor defensively they've been. I know they had the horror injury to, to Chris Basham. I know that they've had problems with personnel and bringing in Austin Trusty into the team, but it's desperate. They've, there's no protection for that defence and the defence isn't doing anything <laughs> under pressure. They're just crumpling every week and you, 300 shots on target is is criminal and that that is still under performance. Even if you've had problems over the summer, Paul Heckingbottom will 
have said at the start of the season, we need to be hard to break down first. We need to be like Luton have been. Mm. Luton have lost four games by a single goal. They've drawn two games. Sheffield United are a world away from that and they finished above Luton last season. Well, they're officially off to the worst start in Premier League history. One point from the 10 matches so far and a goal difference of minus 22. And to make matters worse, the only other team in the Football League yet to win this season was their neighbours, Sheffield Wednesday. But Sunday, they went and won. Sheffield United are three points adrift of 19th place. Burnley, who on Saturday became the first team this season to lose to Bournemouth in the league. A first win for Andoni Iraola and oh, by the looks of it, quite a vital one with uh, your man Bill Foley, the American owner, perched ominously. Like a kind <laughs> yeah, of, I thought that. Like a it was overlord vibes, weren't yeah. they? As you stood there in the director's box. Yeah, yeah well, because they it. were trailing Bournemouth and the, the, the glare was you know, visible from space, probably. Uh, Charlie Taylor, it was, uh, who'd scored for Burnley on his f- first goal in his 198th appearance for the club. Uh, who, who got the equaliser for Bournemouth? Semenya, was it? Mm. Semenya. And then that magnificent Harry Kane-esque Philip Billing uh, strike and T-shirt reveal. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that Iraola is pleased that uh, his overlord was impressed enough and that they got three points, but it, it said more about Burnley for me. They're in such a mess. Um, they were basically really good last season at winning the ball high up the pitch with their press. Loads of high turnovers, best in the championship, think best in the EFL, and created loads of chances from it. And they're trying to do exactly the same thing with new players who don't really know the system. And Premier League teams are really very good at passing around a kind of half press. The number of times, just in this game alone, even on the highlights, that Burnley had four or five players ahead of the ball when Bournemouth had possession. You can't do that as a promoted club. You can't assume you're going to be all right to do that. And I don't think that Vincent Company will compromise. And if he doesn't, then either those players are going to have to learn it really, really quickly or they'll go down. Vincent Company pointing to the performance of VAR, which took, I think, over five minutes to determine whether Jay Rodriguez had equalised for the Clarets late on, and then failed to spot what looked like a fairly evident defensive handball that might have led to a, a penalty, or failed to even go back and check on that. Next up for Burnley, intriguingly enough, is a reunion with their former boss, Sean Dyche, as Everton hosts them in the League Cup on Wednesday. Uh, also on Wednesday night... Bournemouth are hosting Liverpool, which could get tasty. All right, next up, uh, ooh, we'll hear about more about Daniel's trip to the Pharaohs and touch on Spurs and Wolves. Yes, Tim. Hello there, Ayo here. Listen to me on the Athletic Football Podcast, where we go deep on the biggest stories in the game, providing insights and analysis from the very best journalists in the business. You won't get this anywhere else. Available now on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Just search the Athletic Football Podcast now. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Garfield ground, silly game, f*** off. <laughs> An earlier take on the Faroe Islands from broadcasting Just... legend Richard Keyes. Daniel, you went along all the same this week. No better country in Europe for dark forces to start swirling in the Faroes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, your pictures looked amazing. Follow Daniel on Instagram to enjoy them yourselves. Uh, and we, we touched on the incredible victory over Olympia Ljubljana 3-0 in the Conference League on Thursday night. Best bits of this trip for you? So the Faroes, this sounds very, very twee, but um, there's a kind of running joke in the Faroes that most tourists ask for directions to the view in, in holiday destinations. And in Faroes, all you have to do is turn around on the spot. And it is, it is literally like that. Everywhere is either looking at the sea, looking at a mountain, or stood on top or in one or the other. It's just a remarkable place. Or um, looking at a football pitch, which is... Yes, yeah, so or looking at a football pitch. I mean... I've done this piece and for the November international break, I'll do a long read about Faroe's football in general because it's a, it's an incredible place. They, they have sunk in the world rankings to about 120, but they, they have been as high as 75. And this is a country with 50,000 people who by FIFA ranking points are basically the most overachieving football nation in the world. Well, in your article, you break it down even further. Males aged between 15 and 35, they've only got 7,000, but they all play football all the time. Yeah, they do, because they have four domestic leagues, four domestic divisions. Wow. Um, Nice that the pharaohs have a pyramid. Lovely. Um, And every ground is at the middle of the town, and all the houses are looking up from the sides of the valley and everyone's just looking down literally growing up watching the football club every football pitch in the Faroes and the national stadium down is open for kids to play on all the time when there's not a game on they put the floodlights on at night for the kids to play all the time and yeah the whole culture is come and play football in your spare time we want kids to play football we want it to be a participation sport it's not just football although that's what I'm going to write about Hmm. handball and volleyball they just overachieve at everything it can only be the population that holds them back because 50,000 people just isn't enough to create an elite team. But everyone I spoke to, the next thing that they want is for one of their players to get the kind of big move, as happened with Iceland, with mm. a kind of six times as big a population. That's what they want. The difference between them and Iceland is that Iceland have these indoor domes where you can play in the winter. The Faroes don't. And it gets. it was cold enough in October, never mind. November onwards uh, and so that it's a summer league which has its drawbacks but the football culture is joyous it really is it's like a kind of Sunday league mi- mixed with tropical island it's so good um, yeah every every little village has this football team and everyone grows up and everyone plays for the team and you end up playing second tier league football of your country because you are born there at about the right time <laughs> brilliant can Kui is that right Kui 
Koei, yeah. Koei Klaxvik. Can they become the first Faroese team to qualify from a European group stage? <laughs> That's their thing now. They're like, well, yeah, well, next we have to qualify. And look, they can win away in Ljubljana. I don't think they will, but they definitely can. They've still got to play Slovan Bratislava at home. They only lost 1-0 away there and they were annoyed with how they played. They will lose away at Lille because Lille will... Um, will have been smarted by that result and will probably need to win it to qualify. I, my suspicion is they'll finish third in the group, but they will give it a go next season. The only kind of downside, and, and Kaoi themselves, the only downside is that the money they're making, I think they've made about four and a half million euros in the Conference League. I mean, that dwarfs every other club in every other league in the Faroes combined. So, that is a slight drawback. They're now going to win the league in every season, I'm sure. But yes, they will be aiming for Europe again. Magnificent. All right. Of course, uh, Tuesday we'll see the Totally Football Show's European edition a return, in which there's loads to talk about. Big weekend, of course, for English players abroad. Jude Bellingham with a brace to turn El Clasico around as Real Madrid came from behind to win that. Harry came with an extraordinary hat-trick as Bayern beat Darmstadt 8-0. Uh, but also really, really worrying stories once again from Ligue 1. Marseille were due to be playing Lyon on Sunday night. As we record, very unlikely that game's going to go ahead after Fabio Grosso received a serious injury to the face. Marseille, uh, sounds like Marseille supporters uh, attacking the Lyon bus with, with rocks and a uh, nasty injury for the Lyon manager, Fabio Grosso. But uh, more on that, of course, uh, in Tuesday's Totally Football Show European edition. Quick shout as well for Monday, Full Time Europe, which is the athletic women's football podcast too. They'll be talking about Nations League action there. Meantime, back to the Premier League for us and league-leading Spurs roll on. The dynamic Tottenham Hotspur heading to Selhurst Park on Friday night, as did our very own Tim Spears, uh, who was really, really bored in the first half, Tim. Uh, oh, yeah, it was awful. It was a dreadful first half. The only thing I remember, actually, even even more than even forty eight hours later, is uh, Pape Sarr falling over as he tried to cross the ball. Mm. But that's the only thing I'll remember from it. It was dreadful. Um, but second half any better? It sort of had it had all the makings of Spurs kind of coming unstuck. I thought Palace and Roy Hodgson were doing a proper number on them. They completely shut down Yves Bissouma, who was man marked by Will Hughes and um, just stopped Spurs playing through midfield, which has been such a strength for them this season. And they resorted to sort of Madison, not long balls over the top, but direct balls into the box, which Mark Gay was just, just sweeping up. So, yeah, and Spurs didn't get much better in the second half, to be honest, but they got they got lucky, they got an ugly goal, and they ended up winning 2-1, despite having had one shot on target. Right. So, so Joel Ward it was who diverted James Madison's cross uh, into his own net, and then Son Heung-min doubling the lead later on with the, their only shot on target. Uh, James Madison, the signing of the season in the Premier League? I think so. I think he's the form player in the Premier League at the moment. And every single week, it's 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 not just the goals and assists, which are magnificent, but everything goes through him. You know, he's he's their conductor and their... Um, from all parts of midfield, it's not just that he's sort of stood in the 10 position and then playing nice through balls. You know, he, he comes deep to get it off the centre-halves as well. He sort of plays three midfield roles in one. And then he's got the end product at the end of it so Spurs it's, it was good to see them win in a different way because they have been sort of blowing teams away with this this fast creative very nice football but this was ugly 
and uh, you know, typical difficult place to go on a Friday night, but they came through it. And some some of the numbers that they're racking up now are very impressive. So um, in a 20-team Premier League season, no one's ever won uh, as many as they have at this stage and not reached the top four. Um, and you'd think with five places for Champions League, you know, they're, they're looking pretty good for that. It's the best ever start to a Premier League managerial career from Ange Postacoglu um, in terms of the points that he's got. Son has scored eight in 10 as opposed to 10 in 36 last season. And uh, they briefly went five clear for the first time since 1961. Good Lord. Which is when they last won the league. So that shows yeah. you how rare this is for them. And I think there is room for improvement. There are a couple of players that just, I mean, Richarlison looks like the odd man out right. to me. It's, Rodrigo he, Bentancur making his return. So Bentancur came back. I mean, he was, um, apart from Harry Kane, he was their best player last season. He was, um, yeah, he's been out for eight months, but he'll add some real class and guile to that midfield. Um, and I think if, if you look at the fact they're scoring a lot of goals, but two of their front three just aren't scoring. So Richarlison, like, he, he, Richarlison can't shoot at the moment and Kulisewski just won't shoot. It's this infuriating thing that he just gets in great positions and then just dithers in possession. And you look at someone like Brendan Johnson coming on and starting to make an impact was their big summer signing who hasn't really contributed yet. You look at Bentan Core coming back. Um, it's interesting. I think the biggest thing for Spurs in the next few weeks will be their mentality because right. they're the front runners now, which is something that they won't be used to. Okay, the biggest thing perhaps in the slightly more long-term future is January, which brings not only the Africa Cup of Nations, I don't know how, how much that's going to affect them, but an Asian Cup, which runs from, I think, kind of mid, well, sort of earliest January to for about a month, kind of the 11th of February, I think it wraps up, which will take Sun out of the picture, you'd imagine, for a fair chunk, if not all of that. And then two of their midfield three so far, Bissouma and Saar, oh, right, will yeah. also be going. So, you know, Hoiberg came in against Fulham the other night and did a good job, but he's he's no Bissouma. So how much cover do they have in the squad for that? Or is that where this title title bid that the Spurs fans are beginning to believe in is going to come unstuck? They'll have to find replacements because, like as I've, as I've said, no one else is really scoring consistently apart from, apart from Son. But is Daniel Levy the kind of guy to go out and throw a load of money at, you know, uh, squad players to get them through a few weeks? But how often are Spurs in this position? I mean, even when, even in the Leicester title winning season when Spurs were the ones that were pushing them, Spurs never even topped the table that year. Mm. You know, this is so rare for them to be in this position. And the mentality will be important because it's still this sort of honeymoon phase, nothing to lose. They're all, it's all very fun and it's new. But there will come a point if it hasn't started to happen already where there is something to lose. And if they're still top in a few weeks, and they've got some very difficult fixtures in the next few weeks, by the way, but if they get through those, still top of the table, then then you really start to get into something to lose territory, which is, of course is something Arsenal went through uh, last season. Mm, indeed so. Any other thoughts on Spurs before we deal with the last fixture from this weekend, which was Wolves-Newcastle? It's just Madison for me. He, he just looks the most confident player in the division. It's remarkable, really, that Tottenham had such an easy run at getting him. You know, I think he's a, is he a Manchester United fan. I, th- I think I'm sure I read that previously. You just think of United choosing Mount over Madison, and it's sort of laugh out loud, really, isn't it? In terms of 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 that choice, he he's been sensational, and it's lovely for Son, isn't it, to have a have a different partner. He he, he loves to have. A brother within that team, he lost Harry, and now he's got he's got Madison. So, yeah, for as long as those for as long as those two stay fit and healthy, Spurs are going to create a lot of chances. I looked ahead of this weekend, and Spurs for me, well, not just for me, but Spurs full stop have been uncreative. I think it's fair to say over the last few years, 
head of this weekend, three of the top six chance creators in the Premier League play for Spurs. So, you know, that's the difference um, under Postacoglu. Madison's kind of the perfect storm of this and Postacoglu good vibes honeymoon as well because I was just hearing Tim talk about him kind of dropping deep and drifting wide and being positionless and that being a really good thing for Spurs. I watched a lot of Leicester at the end of last season and fans were really on his back because he was dropping too deep, he was drifting too far wide, he wasn't staying high enough the pitch, he wasn't... It's so funny how that can just change in an instant by who you've got around you, by the mood, via you know, via a million and one different things. And signing players from relegated clubs can be a risk. It doesn't always work out. There can be, particularly when they're a, a, such a key creator or a key cog in that team, to be able to replicate that and not to diminish any of Sutton's responsibility, in fact, to enlarge it. I know losing Harry Kane helps a huge amount in that, but that's a really hard thing to, for Postacoglu to have juggled. And he's done it seamlessly. He's made Madison look like he's been there three years, which is really, really hard to do when you're a new manager yourself. Mm. Remarkable. All right. Uh, Tim, also this weekend, Wolves 2, Newcastle 2. Where do you want to start on this one? Uh... I was, you know, it was a good game. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it. I felt like Wolves sort of went toe to toe with Newcastle, and they're sort of going back to this sort of fast and fun thing they had under Nuno a few years ago, which is nice. Uh, and they're doing all right. They're on a unbeaten run of five games now, and they've they played Man City, Villa, and Newcastle in that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Came from behind twice here to cancel out Callum Wilson goals. Second of which, I think the consensus is came from a penalty that should never have been given. I mean, Or at least give it, but take it back after. Wolves fans love moaning about refs. Mm. And every single season they've been in the Premier League, they have these sort of rough injustices that they that they just love moaning about. And they obviously they hate it as well. But yeah, that's three this season now. There was, I don't want to keep going on about James, but you know, there was the Anana one on, on Kalajic on the opening weekend of the season where he assaulted him in the air and it wasn't a penalty. And then there was the there was the one at Luton a few weeks ago where Joe Gomez, the ball deflected off his foot onto his arm in the air and that was somehow deemed a penalty. And then this one, I mean, Huang is just is trying to clear the ball basically. Yeah. And he, take, he clearly on the replay withdraws his. That's it. So he takes a, he takes a big than, backswing, ready yeah. to clear the ball. He sees Fabian Scher coming towards him, so he tries to stop his follow through, and he does stop it. And then there is contact, and it's debatable who initiates that contact. Oh, is there contact? I think there. Is, I think there is. Okay. I, I think. I mean, Scher definitely sort of falls right. over mm. the foot. I didn't think it was a penalty. So okay. I didn't think it was a foul. Oh, it wasn't quite as egregious as uh, I may have previously <laughs> thought. But anyway, fantastic goal from Wang to. <sighs> Bring it back to 2-2. Was that a, a grunt of admiration from Daniel there? Yeah. I think it was me. Was Adrian, <laughs> well, yeah. both grunt, I think we both grunted or, or made so a noise. <laughs> it's a lovely touch, wasn't it, Daniel? And, you know, he sold the defender beautifully. But yeah, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed with Gary O'Neill. Like, you know, we kind of spoke last week about maybe Bournemouth made the wrong decision in sacking him. It was by no means a given, and Tim will know this more than me, it was by no means a given that he was a deemed a good appointment by Wolves in the summer. I think it was it was almost by the most pessimistic fans, it was seen as maybe the owners almost giving up on the, you know, the the bells and whistles of the Project Portugal and where's our flashy named European managers gone? We settled for the cheap option. Which, you know, maybe they did, but it's certainly working. They are definitely not going down and they've played their home games Daniel. have been basically against <laughs> Tim's a little bit upset with well sorry Uh, yeah okay well I think Forrest going down you think Wolves that's fine but no they've played five home games this season right? and they've not played a team 
below seventh. Brighton yeah. are the lowest scored the in all of them, haven't played. they? And yeah. They, yeah, and they've scored mm. in all of them. And well, their strikers are scoring. Well, he, here's, here's the slight wrinkle on all of this. They've scored 12 goals this season, excluding own goals. All of them were either scored or assisted by Huang or Pedro Neto. And hence the hush that fell over Molyneux five minutes after Huang made it 2-2 when Pedro Neto was bursting towards the Newcastle goal and suddenly stopped because Twang, his hamstring had gone. How bad is it looking, Tim? Um, I don't know if you've been watching much of the Cricket World Cup, but it reminded me of when India lose a wicket because the whole <laughs> yeah. place just went completely silent and then there's like gasp and then a bit of grief and then, you know, silence. This is a, another big test for Gary O'Neill now because... No one has more assists in the Premier League this season. Wolves' style suits Neto so well. No one's had more fast breaks in the Premier League this season. It's very it's very direct and quick on the break. It's all about running and carrying the ball. And no one's doing better than that in the league right now than Pedro Neto. So hopefully he'll be okay. Yeah, he was he was walking when he left the stadium. He'd been carried off the pitch. But uh, that's a good that's start. That's quite a low bar though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> can, straws here. can I ask you something, Tim? With, with Neto, I did a piece on him this week as well. I mean, phenomenal assists. The, 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 goal, the goals that he's created from dribbles. It's either, it's either a wonder dribble or a, just an unbelievable delivery of his left foot that he produces to create all of these assists. Um, there's a lot of noise about Pedro Neto and, and Arsenal have had a long-standing interest. Do you think that Wolves would would entertain bids in January for Pedro Neto? Because I, I can envisage clubs wanting him because he is exhilarating. He is rapid. He's actually, Statistically, he's the second fastest player in the Premier League this season. Do you think they could resist it or not? I mean, up until last summer, the Wolves had done pretty well at keeping hold of their best players and only selling them when they wanted to. You know, they kept Jimenez when he was in his great run of form. They kept Traore when everyone wanted him. You know, they sold Jota when they wanted to to Liverpool. But the the difference with Wolves now is they had these, this huge financial issue in the summer where they had to ship about £100 million worth of players. Um, and they did spend a bit too. From what I'm told, they're not completely out of the woods yet on that front. So if if Arsenal or another big club came calling in January with a huge bid, I think they would ha- they would have to look at it pretty closely. He's clearly a player that's destined to end up at a Champions League club, and Wolves' financial position perhaps means that would be sooner rather than later. Mm. But obviously, we'll see uh, we'll see what the injury news is first. All right, Newcastle with the two two here picking up a point after their disappointment midweek against Borussia Dortmund. Some tough games coming up for the Magpies in their shiny green. Uh, outfit. Uh, next 10 fixtures in all competitions will see them play Man United twice, Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, Dortmund, Paris Saint-Germain and Milan. Hmm. All of which, of course, without Sandra Tonali, as all their games will be for the next 10 months after he received a suspension for that period for breaching betting rules. Huh. I can't help think that this is slightly knee-jerk because they have just lost, only lost to Dortmund and drawn at Wolves, but I can't help thinking that if Newcastle could have their time back in the summer again, they might do things slightly differently. I don't mean Tenali because that's very obviously. But they, they signed three players for either big fees or committed a big fee in the case of Lewis Hall. And that was Lewis Hall, a left-back. That was Harvey Barnes, a left-winger. And that was uh, Tino Livramento, who is a right-back. And I'd argue that possibly Newcastle's three best players this season have been Anthony Gordon, the left winger, Kieran Trippier, the right back, and Dan Byrne's been really consistent at left back. And what you've got is these three players who, I know Barnes is injured now, but he wasn't starting anyway. I think he's started two league games. The others have have played about 50 minutes between them. And what they are missing is centre-backs, because Botman's injured. Isaac's now injured 
as a striker and Callum Wilson is sadly if you play him twice a week he will eventually pick up a muscle injury and just it was almost like they were building for the future and just took their eye off the needs of the now and that might cost them with this kind of rolling Champions League Premier League commitment mm. yeah no concern there from Daniel's story Adrian where will all your stuff that you mentioned be popping up <laughs> different bits yeah the Premier League website but all we've right. got the EFL podcast what the EFL of course that, that'll be out um, yeah, on Monday afternoon reacting to the weekend and, and some sackings Nigel Pearson yeah. old um, old ostrich he's um, he's um, departed Bristol City earlier today Joey Barton's gone yep. from Bristol Rovers and, and Gareth Ainsworth yeah. yeah Gareth Ainsworth um, as as left QPR, so lots of um, lots to get stuck into. And you'll also be featuring on the Handbreak Off uh, Athletic podcast about well Arsenal. Yep, yep. yeah, absolutely. I've got a live show coming up. I mean, it's a sellout, so I can't plug any tickets. But right. um, really looking forward to that. I think that's right. in. But make two sure weeks. you mention it. Nice. Yep. Gotcha. <laughs> Lovely stuff, Adrian. Thank you for being with us today, Daniel. Many thanks to you after all your travels. Fascinating stuff, Tim. Thank you, and many thanks to Seb as well for pitching in even though he didn't need to just because he happened to be walking by so nice producer Charlie put it all together listener you did the hard bit as ever we're back on Tuesday with our Euro show do join us for that for now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show part of the Athletic Podcast Network discover bonus video content by searching for the Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally The Athletic.